Revelation chapter 4, uh, before we, we get in, why don't we ask the Lord's blessing uh, on our time. Let's pray. Father, this is your word, and we want to understand it um, as you have revealed it. We want to know you as you've revealed yourself in it, Lord, we cannot do that uh, without your work in us. No one knows the mind of God except the Spirit of God, and so, Lord, we pray that the Spirit might instruct us as we read as we study, as we seek to understand what you've written for our instruction. We pray that we might be drawn to worship you as worthy. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Revelation 4, we're in the study of the book of Revelation, calling a call to perseverance. That's kind of the the big picture of Revelation, is Revelation's written to call Christians to persevere in the midst of the suffering and hardship that they will face. And uh, if you uh, remember back a few weeks, we talked about a, a, there's a significant transition point in the book, and we're there. Chapter 4 is a significant transition. And, and if we put the outline up, you'll see that, now you don't have to remember all of this, this is just by way of reminder, uh, the Revelation has a, a prologue and an, an epilogue, or final exhortations, and then in the middle, there are these four visions. Each one begins with John saying that he was in the Spirit. So, he's having these visions from God, and so we're on the second of those visions. This is the, the transition into the second. The second vision is the longest one in the book, and it also contains some of the most complicated and confusing things in the book of Revelation, the reasons why people avoid it. This, this vision has uh, an introduction, chapter 4, which is what we're going to be looking at this morning, but then it has these sets of sevens, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven signs. We could debate about whether or not that's actually a, a seven, but, but there's this interlude in chapters 12 to 14, and then seven bowls, and the seals and trumpets and bowls are all these judgments that are poured out by God on the earth and on, on its inhabitants. And so, before we, we dive in and talk just about chapter 4, I want to take a few minutes and just kind of get the lay of the land for how these chapters are interpreted or a couple different ways in which they're interpreted because there's, there's debate. So, we need to orient ourselves to what's going on in these chapters. So, what's Revelation 4 to 16 about? We get a hint in Revelation 4.1. John says, after these things, that is, after these visions that he'd had in chapters 1 to 3, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, as the voice of Christ, said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. So, what we're going to see in chapters 4 to 16, Jesus says to John, is what must take place after these things. And there's great debate over how to interpret the, the nature and timing of 
What comes after these things, these judgments, these seals and trumpets and bowls? When do these things happen? What exactly are they? When do they occur? And the way we answer those questions uh, has to do with the way that we understand that phrase, what takes place after these things. So, there are, there are two basic views that I want to introduce you to this morning. You may be familiar with some of this already, but I want to introduce you to these two basic views. Um, the reality is there's more than two, right? There's always more than two. And there's variations within each of these views. But, but just want to give you these two as, a, as a, a really broad framework for how we might go about understanding these chapters. So, the first view, if we could put the slide up, this is fun, this is where we get to do charts. The first view, when, when Jesus says, uh, I'm going to show you what must take place after these things, these things is understood to be the church age. That is everything from John's time until the rapture, when the church is removed from the earth. And then what must take place after, which we see John, John's visions describe in Revelation 4 through 16 and really up through 19, that describes this seven-year tribulation period, the last seven years of, of church history, or last seven years, rather, of world history uh, that ultimately ends with the return of Christ. And so, in this interpretation, all of these judgments, the seals, the trumpets, the bowls, they occur in that seven-year period immediately before the return of Christ. If we put the next part of the chart up, typically in this, in this view, these seven seal judgments, trumpets, bowls are understood chronologically, sequentially. So, you have seven seals, and then you have seven trumpets, and then you have seven bowls all the way up to the end. And the visions typically are understood a lot more literally. And this is likely the view that many of you are, are more familiar with or have been taught. It certainly has been a lot more popular in American evangelicalism in the past hundred years or so. But there's a second view, and the second view would say this, would say, when Jesus says what must take place after these things, these things refers to what's happening in John's day, John's visions. And that what must take place after these things is everything from John's day up to the return of Christ, that is, the entirety of the church age. And so, what is being described in Revelation 4 through 19 is not the last seven years of the history of the world. It's everything between John's day and the return of Christ. And in this, in this view, the seals and the trumpets and the bowls, if we could put the next slide up, the seals and the trumpets or the bowls are, are often not understood as being chronological or sequential, as if they're these 21 different judgments, but rather each set recapitulates or retells the same story from a different perspective. So, rather than being limited to the final seven years, uh, this is understood symbolically as describing the totality of God's progressing judgments on the world 
all the way up until the return of Christ. So it does describe things that are future, but not exclusively future. It also describes things that have happened in the past and are happening now, and typically understood with a great deal of symbolism. Now, I will tell you, I take the second view. I think overall the second view does a better job of handling the genre and the symbolism uh, that is inherent in Revelation as apocalyptic literature. I think it does a better job of making sense of the purpose of Revelation as something that would have had immediate significance to the original readers and how they would have understood it as referring to things that were happening in their own time. And it also, that interpretation has a much longer track record in the history of the church. The first view has really only been around for about 175 years. Now, that doesn't mean that it's wrong. That means that that should give us pause as we evaluate it. Now, that's big picture, and you may not agree with me, and that's fine. Uh, even among our pastors, there's some disagreement on how we understand these things, and we have some friendly debate about that. But we have to remember that, that this is not central to the gospel or to sound doctrine. It's not something we need to be dogmatic about. And sadly, many churches have been needlessly divided over which view you take. There are plenty of hills that are worth dying on, but the timeline of Revelation is not one of them. So, that doesn't mean that it's unimportant, but it does mean that it's not of first importance. So, we, we're going to study it. We want to seek to understand it because God's revealed it to us in His Word, and so we want to learn what He has to say, but we're not going to fight about it, or at least I'm not interested in fighting about it. So, all of that big picture uh, is, is how we're, we're going to be working through the next several chapters. Uh, depending on who's up here, you may get slightly different perspectives. We're going to try to kind of teach from, from both, I think, as much as, we, as much as we can. But now we're gonna, we, need to, we need to zoom back into Revelation 4, which serves as the introduction to this whole vision. And what we see in Revelation 4 is that God's unfathomable glory calls us to unceasing worship and unbridled confidence. God's unfathomable glory calls us to unceasing worship and unbridled confidence. So, in the time we have left this morning, we're going to take up John's introduction to this vision in three parts. First, we're going to look at what John sees, then we're going to look at what John hears, and then last, why it matters. So, first then, what John sees. Look with me at verse 2. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. And go down to verse 5. Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there were seven lamps of fire burning 
before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. So first, John sees the throne and the one sitting on it. And this is crucial for the whole chapter, and it sets the tone for the entire rest of the vision. Eleven times in chapter 4, and it's only eleven verses long, eleven times in chapter 4, John mentions God's throne. And that tells us something about what John thinks we should be focusing on. I don't know if you're familiar with this type of book, these these heaven tourism books where somebody writes about this near-death experience they had and they went to heaven. None of their experiences are quite the same, so I don't know where they're visiting, but I don't think it's the same place. And I don't think it's heaven because what never seems to get mentioned is the throne, but John goes to heaven and the only thing he can talk about is the throne. That's what dominates heaven. He attempts to describe what he sees, but like in Revelation 1 where he sees the risen Christ, the words are lacking to adequately convey the beauty of what he beholds. And and we could spend more time going through uh, how all of these different elements are are understood. Why is the jasper stone and the sardius there? Why why does he talk about the rainbow and what is and what does that represent? And and there's there's maybe things to, to be gained from that, but but I don't want to get so lost into that that we don't zoom back out and miss the larger point that John resorts to this language because God is beautiful in a way that surpasses human capacities to describe or imagine. John sees heaven and what dominates his vision is this brilliant, radiant, indescribable, unfathomable glory of God seated on His throne. Then John sees what's going on around the throne. Look at verse 4. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and upon the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Again, verse 6, the middle of verse 6, and in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes front and behind. The first creature was like a lion and the second creature like a calf and the third creature had a face like that of a man and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. Again, that's some strange imagery. Right? And there's, there's all sorts of debate over how we should understand all of these things. Who are the, the 24 elders and, and who are the creatures and why are the creatures covered in eyes and, and things like that. And we don't have time to, to get into all of the, the details on that. I will tell you, I, I think both the, the elders and the living creatures are angels. I think they're particularly exalted classes of angels and I think we have good connection back to the Old Testament to support that. Isaiah 24, uh, angels are referred to as elders, and the, the living creatures especially are, come very close in description to the cherubim and seraphim described in Ezekiel 1 and Isaiah 6. But again, we, we want to be careful not to try to construct this, this kind of angelic 
hierarchy and miss the, the bigger point. Notice as John describes these other things that he sees, notice that everything he sees, he sees in relation to the throne. The thrones on which the elders sit are described as being around the throne. The living creatures are in the center and around the throne. Like the, the Gothic cathedrals of medieval Europe, if you've ever been to Europe and gotten to go into one of these gigantic cathedrals that takes generations to build, you walk in and immediately your eyes are lifted up. The architecture of this beautiful building is designed to lift your eyes up, as it were, into heaven to the vaulted ceilings of the cathedral. And in the same way, the, the architecture, as it were, of heaven is, is oriented to draw our gaze back to the throne. Everything is oriented around the throne, reminding us of God's glory and authority. And in a world that declares that authority belongs to anything and everything except God, John sees God in His unfathomable glory, seated, unchanged, and unchanging on His throne. John not only sees, but he also hears. What John hears is unceasing worship. And just as everything he sees is oriented around the throne, so too what he hears is focused on the throne and the one who is seated on it. Look at verse 8. The four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, to Him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before Him who sits on the throne and will worship Him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before Him, before the throne, saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. John hears this, this unceasing worship of heaven. Uh, first, John hears that God is worshipped for the glory of who He is, His divine attributes. In verse 8, we see specifically three mentioned here. He's worshipped because He's holy. Holy, holy, holy. He's utterly and entirely unique and set apart. There's no one like Him. He's absolutely morally pure and incorruptible. He only does what is right and cannot do what is wrong. He's Almighty. He's the Lord God, the Almighty. He's all-powerful, omnipotent, sovereign, the one who sits on the throne, the one who works all things according to the counsel of His will. And He's eternal. He's the one who was and is and is to come. He's the one who lives forever and ever. 
He exists before and outside of time and will exist in unchanged perfection forever and ever. Everything else fades away, but as the psalmist says, you are the same and your years will not come to an end. John, here's God worshipped for the simple glory of who He is. And He also hears God worshipped for the glory of what He's done. We see this in the worship of the elders in verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. He's worshipped specifically here for His work of creation. We'll see in chapter 5, He's also worshipped for His work of redemption. But here the focus of the elders is on the glory of Him as Creator. Creation itself is the overflow and the expression of God's glorious perfection. And so not only the angels here, but as Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies above proclaim His handiwork. So the worship of of heaven is laser focused on the one who sits on the throne, who's worthy because of who He is and what He's done. And in a world that, that calls for the worship of everything but God, John hears the single-minded, unceasing worship of all the host of heaven, saying with the psalmist, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. And God's unfathomable glory being unceasingly worshipped in heaven calls for our unceasing worship as well. Yet, we, we don't see God in His glory the way that John did in his vision. Would that we did. Because I think if we're honest, some of us probably are thinking that if, if we were there listening to the four living creatures utter the same 18 words without end, we'd be losing interest in about four minutes. If all we're going to do is sing the same thing over and over for a billion years, we're a little concerned that we'd be bored. And I can relate to that feeling, but I think it betrays something about the way that we think about God. So, we don't see or think of God as gloriously as He truly is. The angels who stand in the presence of God never cease to cry, holy, 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 and they don't seem to have an issue with the repetition. They're not standing around saying, Alexa, next song. Why? Because their eyes, unstained by sin and mortality, see the unveiled glory of God. They aren't concerned about whether or not they like the song because they're focused on Him. See, if we saw God as He is, we probably would be a whole lot less concerned about singing the same song over and over again, about the potential of being bored. Not only would it be all that we could do, it would be all that we would desire to do if we saw God as He is. We can't expect, while we still struggle with indwelling sin, and we're going to 
have the, the clarity and consistency of this view of God in us now. And I'm sure many of you resonate, as I do, with the words of John Newton from his, his hymn, How Sweet the Name of Jesus Sounds. How weak the effort of my heart, how cold my warmest thought, but when I see you as you are, I'll praise you as I ought. So we can, we're not going to see God in this kind of unveiled glory now, but we can increasingly cultivate a heavenly attitude of worship. And so we need to, to focus on growing a more robust and biblical view of this glorious God that we worship, so that our attitude towards worship, which is more than just singing, it's this entire lifestyle orientation toward God, that our worship increasingly moves off of ourselves and our preferences and focuses on God and His glory. So John sees God's unfathomable glory. John hears heaven's unceasing worship. But but why is it here? I mean, why, why does John see this at the beginning of this set of visions that ultimately are going to be about the judgments that God is pouring out on a sinful and wicked world and the suffering that will be endured by His people in the midst of it? Why, why does it matter for what Revelation is teaching. And I think if we consider the context of John's audience as well as, as the things that, that are described in the subsequent chapters, I think we get a hint. I think God's unfathomable glory not only calls for our unceasing worship but also our unbridled confidence. Remember, the original audience is beginning to suffer at the hands of those around them whether that's social marginalization by their neighbors or state-sponsored persecution by the Romans. And in the coming chapters, there's going to be an unveiling of visions of terrifying, cataclysmic judgments and the trials and the tribulations that are going to be endured by God's people, including for some of them being martyred for their faith in Jesus. But before John sees any of this, he sees this vision of the throne. What he sees in heaven, what he describes to us, ought to fill us with this unbridled confidence. Why? Because in the midst of everything that was going on in the first century and John's original readers, in the midst of everything that's going on in, in our lives now, in the midst of everything that will be going on from now until Jesus comes back, God is on the throne. He's not frantically trying to figure out what to do in response to the latest disaster. He's not like the Wizard of Oz standing behind the curtain desperately pulling levers trying to keep things together. His bracket never gets busted. He's seated in sovereign and uncontestable power, reigning with all authority and glorious splendor. Heaven is not frantic either, right? The angels are not desperately trying to get God's attentions like the disciples were on the boat, saying, Jesus, don't you care that we're perishing, right? That's not what the angels are doing. What are the angels doing? They're, they're worshiping. They're not saying, God, don't you see what's going on down there? It's getting bad. Aren't you listening? Aren't you paying attention? No, the angels are bowed in humble worship. 
not a hint of concern about God's sovereign rule. He's holy, almighty, eternal, and in complete command. Now, think of the effect that this would have had on John's readers. Bruised and broken by trials and afflictions imposed on them by the world around them, John reminds them that there is a throne in heaven and there is one who is seated on the throne. It is not vacant. And at the outset of this vision, which really stretches into Revelation 16 and will display the full force of God's judgment and the terrible trials Christians will endure at the hands of those who oppose God and His rule, to know that God is on the throne, reigning in His glory, would bring great comfort and, yes, unbridled confidence. I want you to think about your response to what's going on in your life, your family, the world around you. When we suffer and endure trials and discouragements, we have a tendency to forget God. We have a tendency to live like practical atheists to think God must not hear, or God must not care, or God must not be there. So our, our natural response often is simply despair. And we may not, we may not formally believe that. We may, we may know in our minds, yeah, of course I know God is there, of course I know He answers prayer, and, and, and so forth, but, but the way that we live we live as if that's not true. And for some of us, for many of us, maybe for most of us, this is something we've experienced in the past year, the past month, the past week. I'm sure you can think of those times, and, and it may be something you're experiencing right now. You don't have to call it to mind. It's right there. You feel it where you sit. But imagine we were able to pull back the curtain of heaven, like John, and get a glimpse of what was happening there right now. What will we see? We would not see, as we might be prone to think in our lowest moments, a captainless and rudderless ship hopelessly careening towards ruin. No, we would see God in unfathomable glory, the one whose appearance defies all description, seated upon His throne, receiving the unceasing worship of the heavenly host and all the saints that have gone before us to glory. We would see heaven confidently awaiting the fulfillment of God's perfect and unthwartable plan. And if, if you could see that, how would it change your response to suffering, to hardship, to trials, to sickness, to death? Would you respond with the same despair? Or if you could see God seated on His throne, would it lead you to a greater confidence in Him and His plan? Because, because I want to tell you 
this morning that this is what is happening in heaven right now. We don't need to pull back the veil and see it with our eyes. We have something more sure than our sight, and that is the Word of God. And the Word says that God is on His throne. And if God is on His throne, it should fill us with this unbridled confidence, no matter what we face now or in the future until Jesus returns to make all things new. Let's pray. Father, You are worthy to receive honor and glory and power. You are holy, all-powerful, eternal. You do not share Your glory with another. Lord, help us. Give us eyes to see as Your Word lays before us the truth. Give us eyes to see what is true of You. Help us to have the confidence of knowing that You you reign no matter what we endure. Lord, help us too to know that You love us. You are working all things for the good of those who You call according to Your purpose. You're both willing and able to do so. And we thank You for it. In Jesus' name, amen. And may the Lord bless you and keep you, make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you with kindness and give you peace. Amen.